experience this week and I wasn't able to understand it completely. I, a while ago I had about a thousand dollars which I received and I sort of viewed it as a little savings that I would have um, to use in emergencies or for travel or for something. And then something came up this month and I had to spend a large chunk of it unexpectedly and like overnight. So I didn't have time to sit with the decision, it was just now. And so I found myself wanting to replenish it. I mean, very grateful that it was there and knowing that I needed to use it for, for this new uh, cause. And yet also knowing, not quite knowing how to pray for savings because I didn't want to pray for, let me just have money in the bank. And yet I remembered how Swami had said he always kept some pile of money so you could always start over if need be. So I couldn't get clarity enough on it to pray for it. I didn't really know what I wanted. And uh, other than just let me have more money in the bank, which didn't seem clear. So. That's great. What you're really praying for is the capacity to respond to things that you don't know God's going to ask you until He asks you. So what you really want to ask is, Divine Mother, you know, make it possible for me to respond. And it's all right to say, you know, I'd love to see that bank account go up again. And I would do things like, you know, put in ten dollars. You know, just start, you know, I'm going to do my part, Divine Mother, by trying to rebuild it this way. And you know the only reason that I want to keep it is so that, look what happened, I needed it. So I'm going to assume that you're going to ask unexpected things of me from time to time, so why don't you work with me to help? You know, I want to do my part and, and not be foolish, because it's not hoarding to be sensible. You know, common sense, again, things get really mixed up. Common sense is to have a little savings and um, be able to be able to move and not to spend. I just read in a this was just the most common. Um, I'm a little shorter than usual, folks, because either I'm really short or really tall. I just don't have a lot of choice. I stood up here, and the giantess vision was not really common. <laughs> so you have to forgive me. I can go back and be the height that I was, but then I'll be far away. So just shift around. So you know, they put the chairs really straight, so I encourage you to turn your chairs, or else you're going to have to spend on a chiropractor after tonight. So, you want me to give me a little bonus? Little, little director's box, or maybe a football. Don't leave them, are you talking to them? Smaller one. She has smaller, smaller, smaller. Oh, it plays out that much. Energy and things like that is not to be commonsensical. You know, that's the other thing that I really have seen over the years, and people um, trying to be so new age in any sense. As Swami says, people get so open-minded, their brains fall out. <laughs> it's just, uh, um, if, you, if you want to accumulate money, if you, if you want to be sensible, you need to say Oh, I started to say, I read this debt. There was this, um, this woman who runs a business called Cheapskate or something like that. But it was about getting out of debt. She got $100,000 in debt and got herself out and then made a business. I um, ran a newsletter about how to get out of debt. And she, she said something just so interesting. This is like, this is not on the level of this book, but it's on the level of the subject. She said, uh, everybody thinks that money is to spend. She said, money is to give away, to invest, and to save. And then you spend it. 
And she said that the formula that she set up is the first you give away, you give away 10%, um, you save 10%, you invest 10%, and then what's left you can spend. But she said, that everybody else, you know, that's the thought people have. I have this much money, how can I spend it? But she said the result of that is that you're always out of money. And at the end of this book, we come to that subject of tithing. But it's a real, fun, it's just real fundamental. The whole orientation of what money is for. So your question of, I think, having a contingency plan um, it's really a good idea, and you can remind them on this is a real good idea for you because so many unexpected opportunities come up, you don't want to have to go into debt and do it. So she really needs to get back in the game with you. Since she emptied it, you trust she's going to fill it up again. And that's just a straightforward, very honest thing to say. And uh, here's my $10 or my 10 cents, you know, whatever it can be. I love percentages. And when I get to tithing, I don't want to spoil it because I want to save it, but when I get to tithing, I love percentages. Because if you have one penny, you have one tenth of one penny. Percentages are so perfect because it always, it just floats around. Fixed sums, you, you are always agitated about. For percentages, you always have. I mean, I, every so often, some buddy will say that we should just reform the whole American tax system 10% straight across throw out everything else, and it would be absolutely fair, and it would be. Because everybody has 10%, and it just comes out absolutely equitable. But I love that lady's formula for that reason. I tried to persuade my, you know, one of my child friends, you know, how to do that, didn't Swami, Swami always used to use envelopes. Even to this day, Swami has envelopes, I think. He used to have just envelopes. I find that really helpful, too. You just have categories, you just keep it real simple. This is this category, this is that category, and then you have in front of you what you're working with. This is not money management for the small-minded person. <laughs> I think there's something very tangible. Just this is another small thing. Swamiji always keeps his money very neatly in his wallet. He always keeps the bills in sequential order. He said he met a very wealthy man many years ago who always kept his money in sequential order and always kept it very orderly. And I, I, uh, I was trying to tell my nephew why he shouldn't just throw his things on the floor. And uh, I wasn't having a lot of success. But then we ended up having a, he's very philosophical, we had a very philosophical discussion about consciousness in all life, which is actually one of the things we're we're talking about tonight, you are a part of a greater reality, you are a part of an intelligent reality. And I was saying to him, you know, your jacket and your backpack and your musical instrument and your books, they're not, they, they don't appear to be alive in the sense that they can't answer you back, but they're all manifestations of the same energy. And if you treat them badly, they will treat you badly. It's just as simple as that. You just sort of create a flow of energy where the energy is wrong. Because you can feel it, it's wrong to just drop your stuff on the ground and put your feet on it. You know, like little kids do, he throws it on the floor and then puts his feet on it. And it's just, it really bothered me. And when it wasn't until I could say that to him, that even for myself I could articulate in a way. And it's very true, it's not that you should worship dollar bills or anything like that, but in the name of non-attachment or something like that, don't treat it disrespectfully. Because if you treat it disrespectfully, you get that whole cycle going. And Swami's just always very careful. He's very, he's very consciously careful about everything he does. But you know, I, I, I watched him many times. Just put all the money back. 
very carefully. And I mean, he's the most detached person I know, but he also recognizes that you have to create the right magnetism because everything's alive that you're relating to. That's not exactly what you asked, but it's, it's part of the same story. Well, any other questions or thoughts? Anything during the week that needs to be addressed? All right, I had um, some ideas which you may or may not enjoy, but I am in the power position to decide. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I've been really reflecting during the week, and I love the two chapters that we're working with this week about just being part of a flow of consciousness, and everything is a flow of consciousness. And I was just reflecting too on sort of what quality of awareness we're trying to generate through this class. And, and as we get further into the book, you know, skipping ahead a little bit, we get into the whole subjects of affirmations and so on. And I didn't want to wait because they come right close to the end. But since we're dealing with um, a flow of energy that is responsive to the kind of magnetism we put out, since we're dealing, as we, we will talk about more in these chapters, to the, the fact that, I mean, the simple words that Swami used last week, which I just love, we attract money to us, and by the same token, by our consciousness, we repel it. So everything is about generating a positive, dynamic flow of energy. And that, of course, is an enormous, um, all-pervasive responsibility. And so many of the techniques that we use within our sangha are really entirely relevant to that. The more dynamically positive we can be, in every area of our life, and not positive in a naive sort of way. That was the question I was answering with you. Not positive, like I was saying, which is really a little rich in consciousness, which is I don't really have to put out energy. But where there's energy, where there's willpower, there's energy. Where there's willpower and energy, there's magnetism. Where there's magnetism, there's abundance. Not necessarily our ego's idea, but nonetheless sufficient abundance. So I wanted to just teach you what most of you know, a very simple set of exercises which we call the superconscious living exercises, which always embarrass people to do. We teach them to our children. But it's a very dynamic mood changer. And after we do the superconscious living exercise, we're going to sing one of Swami's songs together um, because the music and the words will do very good different, have this power in them that gives us a clue, both these exercises and this music, Give us a clue as to what it is we're trying to do. Because otherwise we say be magnetic, be attractive, you know, be dynamic. But it's it's words, it's hard to understand. You sort of sit there and you think, okay. <laughs> I guess I have to be more positive. <laughs> so, all of you stand up. And then you can write this. Okay, Roxanne, you don't have to stand. Okay. <laughs> we march in place energetically, and you say very simple words, I'm awake and ready, 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 I'm awake and Most of you know this part of for space, arms extended to the sides, and then brought back to the chest, arms forward, Grab back to the chest and then raise your hands up in the air. This one says, I am positive, energetic, enthusiastic. I am positive, energetic, enthusiastic. I am positive, energetic, enthusiastic. 
tap your head and you say, be glad my brain, be wise and strong. 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 Then you rub your body all over. The master says every single cell has individual intelligence. So you say, awake, rejoice, my body cells. 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 Okay, then you tap yourself, as if in case you hasn't noticed, when you say, I am master of my body, I am master of myself. I am master of my body, I am master of myself. I am master of my body, I am master of myself. Great, okay. <laughs> you can sit down. And I watched the little children do it this morning. They were very squirrely yesterday. Play rehearsal. And Barbara says, because they're all going like this. Now, whose body are we master of? Or the neighbors? So don't pound on your neighbor. <laughs> all right. Um, we have we have it up there. This song is Tommy's Dare to Be Different. <clears throat> And uh, it's sort of like almost a theme song. It's become a theme song for now and then. So let's try this one. Most of you know it. You all did really well with that exercise. I really want to say something to you. You know, 99% of failures because you get discouraged and you stop putting in energy. Really. And if you fail, go bankrupt, lose all your money in the stock market, end up divorced, but don't lose your energy and your enthusiasm, you just keep going, correct? When you really fail, it's not because of anything that happens external, it's because you don't know how to keep on, right? Now, just a little thing, I'm positive, energetic, enthusiastic. If you can just keep turning the magnetism, sooner or later, your attracting energy will bring back around to you whatever it is you think you've lost. So, I put that out there, not at all in a casual way. And not at all, it's just some little like, sort of side thing. Now let's really talk about prosperity. You know, I asked Swamiji, you might as well hold on for just a second. I asked Swamiji once, a number of years ago, when Ananda was deciding that we wanted to turn our karma because we were dirt poor. And we really, people felt that they wanted to go to the dentist, you know, things like that. So we had to, to work on it. And so, um, because we had never thought about it that much, people, we're thinking that we had to go to other sources, you know, so there are people on unity and religious science and various, you know, what, how do you make money? How does it, don't do that, Joe. Oh, I see, okay. Um, um, the, uh, uh, oh, going to other places, asking them for the secrets of prosperity. And I said to Swamiji, certainly it's inherent within our own teachings. I mean, it's not that I have any objection to anybody else's, but Master covered everything. I said, what would you say is the secret of prosperity? He gave me a one-word answer, creativity. It was a fascinating answer, and I thought about it. I've thought about it a lot since then, and I've since, since that time, because that was a question I asked him you know, in the late 70s, and I've been in the position with a lot more responsibility for manifesting these things, and every time I feel stuck, I remember what he said. What is creativity? It's just thinking of something else to do, right? It's just never feeling that there's nothing for me to do. And it's also the very simple thought, creativity means 
to, well, he's, he, he just, in fact, recently gave a fabulous new definition of creativity that I've never heard before, which is, he said, creativity is giving outward expression to the inner inspiration you feel. Isn't that beautiful? Outward expression to the inner inspiration you feel. It doesn't make any difference whether you're cooking or filing letters or singing or writing music or anything. It's just being uniquely yourself. That's what that means. But in this context also, it's just always feeling that there's no end. There's no end point. And see, that's what the chapters are about today. If we're a part of the infinite reality, there's no end point. So it's not possible to reach the point where there's nothing else to do. And so you always just think of another action, another creative action, and in that you can continue to generate energy. If you continue to generate energy, you continue to generate magnetism, and so you're living out of the hole. So I'm positive energetic enthusiastic causes you to think, oh, there's something I can do. Right? Okay, let's see.
Um, we were starting the school like eight or nine years ago here, and uh, David and I were more integrally involved when it first began because it was a, a basic entrepreneur situation. We're not educators, but we understood this, which is what I'm going to tell you. We invite these parents into our living room. And I, mean, I admit it was going to take a lot of courage. Parents have a little bit of a protective attitude toward their own kids, you know. They have like this sense of responsibility and they don't like to use them as guinea pigs if I can get that. So we're sitting here with all these parents, most of whom have, you know, most for most of whom the child that we're talking about was their first child. You get a little casual, maybe a little bit later, but not the first one. And we wanted them put their child in a school that wouldn't exist until they put their child in it. So there was a certain amount of doubt in the room. And it finally occurred to me, and I was very confused by the doubt, because I could see the school. I just knew it was there. And I said, oh, I understand what's happening, most of you, because there weren't. In fact, the one man who had been an entrepreneur and started his own company, he, we thought he would be at the heart, one of the harder cells, but he wasn't, because he understood. And I said, that, I said, the problem here is that probably most of you have not had the experience of looking at a grease spot on the floor and realizing that it's going to turn into something. You know, that it's, that it's going to be there, even though it's apparently not, it will be, because the thought form and the energy and the magnetism is there. And so, you know, one by one, uh, people gave us their children for reasons that even, even I would sometimes think of. Why are they doing this? <laughs> Sometimes the parents didn't know why they were doing it truthfully, but the children's karma was to be with us. And the parents would get this kind of dazed look on their face and they sign up. <laughs> we'd sort of look at the little child and we'd sort of say, like, good job. <laughs> Although the kids didn't know it either, but it was their destiny and it was, it was right in there. But having had the experience several times in my life of really having nothing and watch it turn into something, by the constant application of the laws of creativity, which lead to the laws of manifestation and abundance. Just don't quit. Just whatever you do, don't quit. Think how many stories you've heard of multi-billionaires who went bankrupt repeatedly. You know, they just fail and fail and fail, but they don't stop. The people who fail are the people who stop, not the people who lose everything. You see what an important difference it is? And it's all about energy, and energy comes from faith and from enthusiasm. Okay? You have energy when you're enthusiastic. Think about it. It's always your energy follows your mood. You feel discouraged. I mean, I know. I never, I sort of like, I find myself, this is how it feels when I find myself in bed in the middle of the afternoon. It's sort of like, I realize it's the middle of the afternoon in bed. <laughs> this is maybe the third day in a row that I find myself there, and I don't mean that I never got up. But just somehow in the course of things I managed to get back in and I think something is wrong. You know, there's some lack of enthusiasm here. No, I mean, I take naps, so it's not quite so unreasonable since I have to be at my best at this time, but nonetheless. But I, I feel, you know, I get discouraged and I want to go to sleep. And it's not that I want to go to sleep, I suddenly feel tired. Genuinely tired. Because I don't have any enthusiasm. So Amiji always loves to tell the story of how, for example, let's say you have a big party and uh, you have a great time, but your house is just a wreck. You know, it's people have been everywhere and there's dirty dishes and food and cream cheese, you know, ground into the rug from somebody's shoes and, you know, just the things that happen when a lot of people are in your house. 
And it's, oh, it's too late. I'm just not going to deal with you this day. I'm just going to go to bed. I'll do it after work tomorrow. You go to work, you barely make it through work. You just look at the clock every four minutes, and you can't believe the time is passing so slow. You go home, you see the house you've forgotten in such a wreck. You can hardly bear it. The phone rings. Somebody that you haven't seen in a long time is just in town for one night. All of a sudden, you're full of energy. You're out the door. You're dancing into the late hours. You know, you just totally forget that you can hardly open your eyes. Nothing has changed except your enthusiasm and your desire to do it. Now, if we can begin to have that kind of energy at will, there really is almost nothing that we can't accomplish. And that's what you see in the saints and masters, because it's an attitude of equal, even-mindedness in adversity or in prosperity of just persevering. Now, the techniques for having that, I've just shared a few with you. Music, the right kind of music. These songs are affirmations, even although the world I don't have money. It's sort of a joke, but still, but life is wonderful. Every day is sunny. It's not saying I tell the world I'll never have money. It's just saying, it doesn't make any difference. I have this enthusiasm, no matter what circumstances come to me in life, and therefore I can just keep going forward. Now, another really vital way to have that enthusiasm is what we're talking about tonight, which is really appreciating the fact that we're not alone in this world. Um, it's, a, it's very, very difficult um, to be a human being on this planet. Yogananda spoke of, uh, he, he put it in, in such a graphic way. He said, life is a terrible machine. It just grinds people up and then spits them out. Isn't it just horrible? And then he also said, God eats people. <laughs> you know, you want, you want your master to say things different than <laughs> But when you leave for a while, you get it. You feel sometimes like life is a terrible machine. And one of the most poignant phrases to me in this book is one that you say after the age of 40, many people are just discouraged. You know, they've lost the hope and expectation of themselves ever being successful. The flip side of that is a survey that somebody did once where they said, uh, people asked people what the happiest day of their life was. And an astonishing number of people said their high school prom. <laughs> but what is the characteristic of that? Everything is in front of you. And you can just imagine, of course, it's going to be different for you. You, know, you see what's happened to everybody around you, but you think, that's going to be different for me. And you don't yet have an appreciation of what, you know, your dad and your mom are saying. You have a lucky kid. You don't realize how lucky you have it. Which is not a real helpful affirmation either. <laughs> those are the same people who are happiest in their high school world. That's not really what you're looking for. I have this, I'm a, I'm a great people watcher. And there's this picture that I often see, and I seldom go to the same way, but it belongs to a store, thrifty drugstore, just a place where everybody goes. And oftentimes, women, um, I mean, this is an example of women, but men are the same. You know, as we get older, our shape changes and our face changes, and we don't always look as fresh and as good as we did when we started out. I remember being a child lying in the bed with my mother and observing how old her feet were. Mine were so new. Hers were really pretty old. Of course, she was probably 15 years younger than I am now. But nonetheless, things happen, and you're just not quite the same. 
And you see sometimes, you'll see a teenage girl and her mother, or a teenage girl and her grandmother. And sometimes you see people whose lives really haven't worked out really great for them, and they just don't look very good. And you'll see the teenager, and, and the way teenagers sometimes are, you know, there's a, they like to keep just a little distance. Yeah. And they're there with you, you're paying the bill, but there's just this little distance. And you can just see, if you're sensitive, you can tune in, and you can see, you know, this girl is not proud of her parent, necessarily. And you can see her absolute commitment that she's not going to turn out the same way. And you look at her face, and you look at her eyes, and you know there's no way she's not going to turn out the same way. She's the same person, same consciousness. It's just that it's new, it doesn't show you. You know, just like you kind of wear bruises in your shoes, you put on your own shoes and you know they're yours, even though they're the same Birkenstocks everybody wears, they feel like yours. You know, we put on this body, it's new, it's, nothing's <laughs> happened yet. But the consciousness forms it. You know what's really fun? Uh, I, I, I sometimes look in the mirror and I, I imagine a a habitual consciousness, you know, that that might be different than mine. Or being disappointed or angry at people or <laughs> it's amazing what the same features will do. Yeah. And you can see how if you habitually react, just like your mother used to say, if you're not careful, you'll face a freeze. Well in fact it does. Just the whatever consciousness you're running through habitually you have, uh, you, you become that, and, you, and it's really interesting because I can look and see that if I if I adopt other mental habits, pretty soon the same face will look completely different than it looks right now. You know, and it, it's it's an okay face as it is, but it could be a lot worse <laughs> so, you know, by, by those habits. So so it's this is all part of the realization that we're in this constant energy flow. That this, this life that we're living, it's not enough just to say that money is energy. You have to understand that everything is energy. And the Swami emphasizes there, which is the fundamental rule of, of spiritual life, that it, it's not matter that's the underlying reality. It's not even energy that's the underlying reality, although the scientists are just coming to it. It's consciousness. It's your consciousness that creates the quality of your energy. I mean, think about it. You'll have, you'll have dynamic, positive energy if your consciousness is dynamic and positive. And you'll have really crummy, low energy if your consciousness is crummy and low. Isn't that so? In our education for life system here in our school, what we work with the children is, it's not enough. You know, if you're a smart kid at all, you can kind of catch what the school system is. You can just sail through, make good grades, and never really do anything. That was my unfortunate life experience. As you know, I just, I, I always knew that I was actually doing nothing. I just could play the school game. It was just not a hard game for me to play because I had the particular orientation. In our school, we pay attention to the quality of the consciousness and the energy that the children put out. And the actual manifestation of their work is the last thing they will measure. And I know uh, one of the girls, not from our school here, but from a different school, a different amount of school, she left our, our elementary school and went to the public junior high, and she was on the honor roll, and I congratulated her, and she sort of looked at me like this, and, you know, like, I'm going to tell you a secret because nobody there is listening to me. She says, it's so easy. 
She said, nobody cares if I'm mean to the other kids, if I hate the work, if I'm in a bad mood, if I do it with a crummy attitude. She says, all you have to do is just ace the test and you get an A. She said, and Ananda, they held me accountable for who I am. You know, really different. And so if you, if you really train who you are, everything else follows after that because it's all about energy. So in that sense, we also have to accept that it's not enough. You see, you can fool the teachers, especially the teachers who aren't trained in this way. I mean, good teachers pay attention. And you've got most, most, many school systems don't allow the teachers to pay attention. It's just not part of what's set into it, but that's a whole different subject. But you can't fool yourself. You can't fool the infinite intelligence. You can't act like you're putting good energy just because you've got the service together. You, know, you can't really get an A if your consciousness isn't together. And, and money is very interesting, or I should say abundance is very interesting. Money is what we're talking about, but it's only one form of abundance. Because it's a very honest, magnetic relationship. You know, you simply attract in your life the vibrations that are coming through you. Now bear in mind, I have to add to this, and this comes later in our book. Your subconscious, you, you might not have complete awareness of what you're putting out. Because not only do you have your subconscious, which may be beneath your awareness, you also have the influence of your chakras, which is past lives. Okay? Now, all of that can also be overwhelming. You just sort of end up, you don't even want to know. I mean, it's just a mess. But none of that actually matters, because all that matters is what you're doing in the moment and what you do from this moment forward. Wherever you are on the mountain, even if you're underground, if you want to get to the top, you have to go forward and up, right? And if you want to just sort of sit where you are and be extremely worried and upset about where you are on the path uh, up the mountain, it's not going to do anything to change your position on the mountain, is it? And nor is it going to be really worthwhile to do an enormous amount of exploring about how you happen to get left off on that point. The only thing that really matters is if you don't like it, move. Do something creative. You know, take a new action in order to shift it. Because if, as the premise of our story is today, it really is energy and consciousness, then energy and consciousness is what you have to put out. Now, over the years, I've begun to appreciate it's really about your magnetism. And your magnetism is essentially the quality and quantity of energy that you put out. The formula that Swami gives us is it takes willpower to put out energy, and that energy creates magnetism. Now, you can create, you can have a lot of willpower and put out a lot of energy, create a lot of magnetism. It won't necessarily be positive magnetism. You know, great villains have willpower and create energy and create magnetism, but in very mean people you know, have willpower and energy and create magnetism, but they don't necessarily create an abundance of anything you want, right? So we have to sort of go step by step. The first is we have to really train and develop our willpower. And this is not a small thing. And the willpower is built out of an everyday, consistent setting of goals and meeting those goals. Setting of realistic goals and meeting those goals. That's keeping, uh, speaking the truth, keeping your word, just even in very little ways. Sometimes people feel overwhelmed by this. I was talking to someone just today, 
And I was saying, you know, it looks like a great, great project to do all this, but I'll just tell you very simple. Every time you say you're going to do something, do it. No matter how small, in the specific example I used, I said, you said you would call me the night before we were to go out, and you didn't call me until the next morning. You should have called me that night. Not because it mattered even, but because you said you were going to do it. And I've seen Swamiji over the years to, to an extraordinary degree. If he says he's going to do it, he will do it. And I've gotten myself in a lot of trouble with him, offering him excuses as to why he doesn't have to. You know? And he just looks at me like, you're acting, you're, you think you're my friend and you're trying to tell me I don't have to do it? Of course I have to do it. I said I would do it. So I just said, even to the point of if he said he was going to go to the store and realizes he doesn't have to, we'll just go and he wouldn't come back. Just because he said he was going to do it. Now, it's easy to dismiss that, but the habit of willpower is built up of all these small actions. And we'll say, oh, this doesn't really matter, and that doesn't really matter. But at what point is it going to matter? And of course, that also causes us to be more careful about what we say we're going to do, doesn't it? And another way that we lose our energy is that we're always just running off at the mouth and we don't mean it. Right? We're just saying things all the time that we don't mean. And so where does our energy go? Our energy just goes out into this completely unfocused, and everybody around us and the whole universe is, I wonder what the heck she really does mean. You know, you have to understand also, this is the other half of what Swami's talking about. If it is energy, and if behind that energy is consciousness, the way Swami describes it is something very active is listening to us. You know, this just isn't sort of, we're not really functioning all by ourselves. There's a real interactive relationship with all of creation going on. At what point can we draw a circle and say it's not interrelated? This uh, Buddhist woman teacher, whose name is very well known, but I don't remember it, um, was, was talking about, so if some of you have heard her say this or read it, you'll remember. She was talking about the fact, she was, in this book, she was describing her own progression to accept the law of karma, which is the law of cause and effect in human relations. And she was saying she was able to accept it in sort of uh, big ways, but she had a really hard time sort of seeing how it applied every day in the year and now. And then she thought of the simplest example that just persuaded her. Her little child, her grandson, sneezed in her face, and a few days later she came down with the same cold her grandson had. Okay, so she could say, okay, it was, it was my karma to get the cold because my grandson sneezed in my face. And then she had to think for a moment, well, how did it happen that I was holding my grandson? So then she thought of all the circumstances in her son's life that had led to her having to babysit at that point. But then she thought, no, now, wait a minute. I have to back that up a little bit. I have to think about how my son happened to get married. And all the circumstances involved in how he happened to get a wife. And then all the decisions involved for them to have a child. And then she thought, no, wait a minute. I have to back up a little further. I have to think about how I happened to have a son. You know, and then I have to think about where I was when I met my husband and all the things that he was doing, and gosh, then I guess my grandparents come into the picture. And she realized that, that all the forces that conspired to have her son and her grandson sneeze in her face, you know, she was back to who knows when, Adam and Eve and all the great events of history were all interrelated to the fact that she now had a cold. Now, that can make you really weird, so think about that too. <laughs> <laughs> because 
because everything becomes a cosmic event. How do I generate magnetism? 
And, and it's a seamless reality. That's why Swamiji approached the subject of money from such a cosmic level. If you enter into the flow of life with a sense that we're in this together, then making money, making friends, you know, having good health, anything that you want to do, it's all part of this same flow. Um, and Swamiji writes, I wanted to deal with this for a moment before we take a break. He said, he, when he was talking about being a spent force by the time you're 40, he used a phrase that was just very interesting. If you have divided your life up between two points, like he mentioned, like family and job, instead of seeing life as an integrated whole. I, um, I don't have a rubber band, but I like to do a, a demonstration with the rubber bands. I pretend I have one in my hand here. You know, people talk a lot about stress, and I'm being pulled like this. But stress is created when you have a, res a point of resistance. You don't have stress without a point of resistance. If I have a rubber band in my hand and it pulls this way, but we all move, then, then there's no stress, is there? I mean, there may be energy, there may be forward motion, motion, but there's no stress. Stress comes when you pull one way and are pulled in another way, right? Okay, now that doesn't mean that you don't put a rock into the river and say, I can't go beyond this point because we can't do everything. We have to concentrate, we have to have willpower also. But we don't have to feel that things that are happening are happening against us. Okay, the mindset that things are happening against us, um, instead of feeling that everything that's happening is part of my reality. It, it's, it's a subtle change, but it's a huge change. Whenever we feel separated and acted against is when we begin to feel contracted. And, and I want to talk as soon as I take a short break here. You know, the, the, the one point that Swami talks about is that there's two directions for human consciousness to go, toward expansion or toward contraction. And that really becomes the fundamental attitude that determines what kind of magnetism we have and what our faith is like and what our sense of abundance is. Now, I'm going to stop and ask if there's questions or comments. We'll have to take a break. Music is a very powerful form of developing magnetism. I think I'll spend a moment on it since I've accidentally gone there. Um, there's a very interesting, I don't want to, very, there was a book, there was a book written by a woman who, who tried to commit suicide and uh, fortunately did not succeed. You know, there's a lot of books about people who die and go into the light and come back. Well, this woman tried to kill herself, but she did not go into the light, she went to hell. And, uh, she really did. She went into hell, and it's a, I, can't, I wish I could remember the name of the book, but I can't. But she was there with all these people, and the, and the characteristic that she saw was that every one of them was totally self-enclosed and had no hope. And so there they were. And she, she said she could tell that some of them had been there for a really long time, you know, like hundreds of years or thousands of years. And they've just been sitting there without hope in a state of total self-enclosure. The exact opposite of what we're talking about in terms of, of involvement and so on. And when she was there, one of the reasons that she both came back to life, and she could also see that it just extended out forever. But on the edges of it, there was light, and there were light beings trying to get into it. <coughs> but the people were so self-enclosed that they, didn't, they couldn't see the light, and the light couldn't reach them. Of course, eventually, all karma ends and you come out of it. But she was there and she saw what was happening. And she had two thoughts. 
One was the thought of compassion for how others were, were, were suffering. Which as soon as she began to do that, the light that was on the periphery began to come into her. And the second thought she had was she thought about Jesus. She didn't really like pray to Jesus, but the thought came to her that some of these people have been here since the time of Jesus. And then it was just like an awareness of the reality of Christ without even having any devotion particularly also allowed the light to come in because it was a bigger thought than the narrow thought that she has. Now, this relates to expansive contracting related to music. This woman also said that it had been her habit to listen to, she might have used the phrase heavy metal. I'm totally out of the loop on this, so I'm not even quite sure what I'm talking about. But she had committed suicide listening to a certain song, and she could tell that a lot of people in hell listened to that kind of music, and also the vibrations of that place were the same as a lot of that music. Now, I don't mean to frighten you, because I know a lot of kids really do this a lot. But, but I'm going to say that this is a very strong way to put it. But don't ever underestimate the influence of what you take into your consciousness. And so if you yourself are trying to change your magnetism and expand your awareness and involvement with things, pay attention to everything that you take in. And sound, in many ways, has more of an effect than almost anything else because we are actually made of sound vibrations. You know, sound is our inner nature. It's, it's not just what we look at, it's what we are. So when things vibrate, they vibrate through us. I was in a, uh, I, I have a, I don't know what I would do if I was the parent of a teenager. I'm not quite sure, maybe Grace would come in. <laughs> because I could, I can't bear it. I mean, I was in a taxi cab and the music was playing. I became almost hysterical to get the taxi driver to stop. The speaker was right behind my ear. I mean, I, I watched myself. I couldn't calm myself down. I just was, you know, becoming frantic. This was in Italy and I didn't speak Italian. Swami, get it, turn it off. You know, I was just desperate like that. So the converse of that is, if you're wanting to improve your magnetism, you can use sound have a profound effect on your magnetism. One man wrote us once that Bomaji put out these two CDs. Um, one is the Om, just Om, repeated over and over, and the other is two Sanskrit mantras, one on either side. And this one man said, basically, he was having ill health and ill fortune, financially and in his relationships, and he started playing the mantra tape. Not the old one, but the mantra tape. And he said he just played it hours every day. And he wrote this letter, he said, I don't know how to explain it to you, but from the time I started playing that, everything in my life has changed. And he said, and I know it's because of that, those mantras. And it wasn't the magic of the mantras, it was literally the vibration of the mantras. That's how he put it, too. It was like something about it came in me and made me a different person. I know when we were engaged in this terrible law, lawsuit conflicts over the last few years that we've had. Sheila Rush, who's been living in Palo Alto and working as an attorney. Whenever things would get hairy, she'd put those mantra tapes on. And you know, it would just be like a background. She was doing very mental work and couldn't really listen, but she'd have it in the background. You'd just come in her house and you know, you'd just like hear it. It would be like a wave going through the house. And we'd always get calmer and more secure when we had that wave going. 
Anything that makes you calmer and more secure, to make your consciousness different, to make your energy different, to make you manifest. So you have to start thinking, and this is in the in the work that I do. You know, it's like Swamiji put it to me once when he was saying, in essence, if if I overdo it, my consciousness gets crummy. And if my consciousness gets crummy, my magnetism gets crummy. Now sometimes you don't have the freedom to pull back, but he just the way he put it to me was he said you don't necessarily do more good by doing more. Because I become too funky. And so I've learned from that that whatever I do, I have to do it with right magnetism. And if I have the freedom to regenerate, um, that's good. If I don't have the freedom to regenerate, I have to regenerate. <laughs> because if you have to do it, you don't want to do it with the wrong magnetism. You know, with the wrong... I remember, but this may be, I hope it's... No, my earliest memory is this pink teddy bear I had with a plastic nose. Because I remember lying in bed and chewing on the nose and putting myself to sleep, so that must have been really, really small. But this is the memory after that. <laughs> The memory after this was, we had this white toy shelf, and in, you know, in my mind's eye, I must have, I don't know how old I was, two, maybe? In my mind's eye, this was huge, I mean, it was just this human thing of toys, it was probably just a little bookshelf, but it was gigantic, and um, as children, you know, somehow you accumulate, and I just had a whole lot of stuff in there, just had it all crammed in, and this mood, which has never hit me since, that I was going to do housework. <laughs> I decided I was going to straighten my toy shelf, and I pulled everything off. That was the way I started. I just pulled everything off, and I piled it in the middle of the room, and then I lost interest. And I got off somewhere and did other things, and of course my mother, who was a very good mommy, noticed what I had done, and brought me in and pointed out to me that I had made a mess, and therefore I got to clean up the to me, this was just a tragedy beyond all imagination that I was going to have to put all this stuff back on the shelf. And I remember seeing myself, I, I sat there and I, you know how children just try to keep crying even when it's over? <laughs> so I was just going, like this. And I lift up one little stuff and I want to move it like this. <laughs> Why and why and drop it on the shelf like this? You know, my mother was having none of it. I was just going to do it. Even as I sat there at the age of two or whatever it was, I kept thinking, this is really not much of a job. Just put the stupid stuff back on the shelf, you know? But I didn't want to. I really didn't want to. I wanted to be a martyr. I was much more interested in being a martyr than I was in getting this five-minute job done in five minutes. The end of the story I don't recall, but I know my mother, so I'm sure I can put them all back. <laughs> but I've never forgotten that. And oftentimes, to this day, I'll find myself doing something, and I'll feel, in essence, I'm just going... <laughs> but I know I'm going to have to put it back on the shelf. There's just no way around it. Because my Divine Mother is not going to let me off the hook. It's just as simple as that. She's going to make me put it all back. So either I do it tragically, not only does it take all day, but I've also set this whole long cycle in motion of, of tragic martyrdom, or I just put the damn things back on the shelf and just have it be finished. And you have to ask yourself, you know, if you're going to have to do it once, you don't want to do it twice, or three times, or four times, or five times. I mean, you don't want to 
set up a vibration that will keep repeating itself. That's a powerful incentive to be good. Once you really get the law of karma, and this is something so good that's written in this in this chapter, he says truth has more power than anything else. Truth has a tremendous amount of power. Cooperate with the truth, and all that power becomes your power. And and don't cooperate with people's opinions or what everybody else says is so, or the pressures of society that you have to do it a certain way. Look to the highest that you understand, and do not be deterred from that. Don't be impractical. You know, the end of the book. What's the last chapter? I think it is the next to last. Be practical in your idealism. This is very very important. This is enormously important. You have to be practical in your idealism, but don't compromise the truth just because other people say that you ought to. And there's this this expression that is fundamental to Ananda: where there is right action. The word, of course, is dharma. Many of you know that word. Where there's dharma, there is victory. Where there's dharma, there is victory. Where there's right action, there's always victory. You need to tattoo that on your arm, because the corollary of that is whenever I don't behave rightly, it will not work out. Promise yourself that, because it won't. It never does. And, and, and especially the more you get in tune with it, the faster it happens. And it's it's considered very good karma to have very fast karma, because very that means that you don't have what you're going to call a lot of conflicting cross currents of ego, which means you can be very a very bad person, but you can be working so hard at being bad that you're still putting out a lot of energy, and the consequences don't come back to you that fast. So by the time they come back to you, you don't remember what you did to cause it. But if you're working in a, in a cleaner, straighter line. Every time you slip off a little bit, it hits you right away. It's very good karma to have that happen. Kriyananda tells the story of a motorhome that he loved so much that it was、uh, given to him, and he was just so excited to have it. If you don't do any traveling and lecturing, I did for a number of years, and, and we finally magnetized the motorhome to us. We were so happy because it just makes a huge difference. We would we would do these lectures in these various cities, park the motorhome right outside the door. By the time they had packed up the boxes, I was in bed. I was so happy because <laughs> <laughs> just my home was like I'd step out of the lecture hall and I'd be in my home and I'd just be in there with the covers up to my chin when they'd be bringing the boxes in. This is bliss, and I was always under my own covers. So I could really understand. So Swamiji had always wanted to have this motor home, and he was a motor home. Yogananda had one. Yogananda created. He built it himself. He called it the house car. <laughs> Before anybody made RVs, he was driving around in one of these things, and he loved it too.、Uh, so Kriyananda was going on a national tour, and they went down to LA, and I think he prayed to Divine Mother and said, "I'm not going to live through this unless I have my own traveling space." So this motorhome of、uh, a wealthy friend said, "One motorhome, okay, I'll buy you one." Very nice man. So Swamiji said he was so happy to have this motorhome. That he really, as he put it, allowed it to make him off center, because he was just so delighted that there was a sense he could just he could just feel it. My happiness is become too much conditioned by having this motorhome, and he had this realization that he was a little off center. He also knew if I if I move off center with delight, then something is going to happen. And so they one of the very first stops. Uh, they, they parked it in front of the Safeway when they were going. There was like 
It was the motorhome, and then there was a van with the whole support crew. It was a whole trip. The van, they, the motorhome, they called Sadhu, which means wandering men. The van they called Chela, which means disciple. <laughs> so Chela followed Sadhu everywhere they went. They got even license plates. It was really cute. But um, they parked. They're going in to get food. They're going to cook in the motorhome. And the man uh, who was just starting to drive it thought it was in gear, and he actually had it in neutral. It appeared to be flat. It was ever so slightly tipped toward the Segway. And so just imperceptibly, the thing was beginning to roll toward the wall. And at the moment it hit the wall, though at, you know, half a mile an hour, Krenanda happened to be like in a position like this, you know, like in the back, up like this. And so it threw it. He, he tried to stop this fall, broke his finger. The minute his finger broke, he said, he said, it made me too happy, now it hurt me. Mm -hmm. He said, now it's injured me. He said, and he just felt instantly karma balanced, you know, just back. And then for the rest of the tour, he had a lot of trouble playing the guitar. He played the guitar more than because his finger was broken. But he was just perfectly happy to have it that way because he tipped off. He'd moved just a little bit out of Dharma, and now Dharma had come back. Now, that's very good karma to have it happen so fast. And if you and we devote ourselves really to right action, just each, and again, don't become socially obnoxious, do it just casually and true. But, but be as true as you can to right action. And, and with the confidence, and you have to experiment in your life, that in the short run, you may think that you're losing, but it will always work out if you do the right thing. To the point where you really actually become quite relaxed. And you're not even really tempted by wrong action anymore. You just think, why would I ever do that? Because there's a certainty that where there is not Dharma, there will be something terrible. And where there is Dharma, there will always be victory. And sometimes you have to do it like a mantra. I know this is going to work out because I've done the right thing. That doesn't mean you've done the perfect thing, you never make a mistake, but you've done your best. You've done what you felt to be right. Many times, what you felt to be right turns out to be incalculably stupid. But nonetheless, you thought it was right at the time, you know? And that's all you can do. And, and you have to appreciate what Yogananda said very simply, which is the divine looks at your heart, your intention. You know, sometimes our intentions are so good and our actions are so misguided because we just don't know. We just don't know what other people really think. We don't have the capacity to understand, but we mean well. So you have to understand that right action is, is what you mean in your heart. That's why Jesus said purity of heart is what brings you divine awareness. Because this is a very, this very mixed up world, you know. And you may be a very good person who has bad karma. You have, may have the karma to have nothing yet work out for you. But if you're pure in your heart, you set that flow in motion. Now, Swami also talks in this chapter about just basically what, this is an extension of what is right action. And he uses expansive versus contractive. And many of you have heard me talk about this before, because there's certain simple rules. And I'm, I'm you know, this book is marvelous because it, it's just a collection of very simple rules. One of them is expansive versus contractive. We always, in all circumstances, essentially have two choices. We never stand still. We either expand our awareness and our connectedness to the universe, or we contract from it. 
And the more we expand, the more we live in truth. The more we contract, the less we live in truth. Now, it doesn't mean that in every single circumstance you have to be like Jesus Christ himself, because chances are that's a little too much to ask. And we're, we're practicing this play, which is about the life of Christ. And at the end, Matthew, who's our first grade teacher and the director of the play and a, and a trained actor, plays Jesus, of course. And he's a big man. He actually drags this huge cross down the aisle. And the cross is so heavy, I couldn't push it. And he carries it all the way through. And it's very dramatic. And he's, you know, being nailed to the cross. We don't spare anything. He's fabulous. He's also the director of the play. So he's here like this, and then it's, you forgot your music cue, dude, that just, <laughs> it's just positively comical, just watching it, you know, because he throws himself completely into it, and then he's scolding the children and yelling at this and getting down to pick up that. It's, it's just so hilarious. But in moments, we can be that powerful, and then we lose it. But every single circumstance of your life, there's always, there's always a, a polarity, there's always two, a, a, an opposite end. What am I trying to say? Everything in this world comes in pairs. And in every situation, you always have some kind of choice. But it might not be a gigantic choice. You know, we just got a box that was given to us of Lady Godiva, of Godiva chocolates. You know, Godiva chocolates are so good, it's a small box. <laughs> How many do we eat all at the same time? <laughs> So maybe there's 10 pieces. We might want to eat all 10, right? That's probably not a good idea. Maybe it's a good idea. But there's all 10, right? We could always eat nine. <laughs> it's like nine is not a real uplifted choice, but it's bigger and better than 10. <laughs> In every circumstance, there's always a way that you can do just a little more than the worst. A little less than the worst, I guess. Probably. A little less than the worst. Okay, a little better than the worst. So don't think of expansive, contracted versus I have to be like Christ himself or else I have to be nothing. Just wherever you are, be a little better. And if nothing else fails, bring divine love. If everything else fails, how <laughs> <laughs> when you do that? I don't know. If everything else fails, <laughs> nothing, well, nothing else fails. <laughs> this will really ruin your life. Swami <laughs> 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 said, Our house tonight is going to be. How did the class go? Well, it was memorable. <laughs> um, if everything else fails, always just bring Divine Mother into your family. In the Bhagavad Gita, one of the sweetest verses in the Bhagavad Gita is this whole litany of, it begins with, you know, the Lord is everything, everything about your life, lay it at God's feet, you know, bring God into everything, be constantly conscious of the divine, and it's one of those thrilling paragraphs. And then it says, and if that's a little difficult for you, then you can just do this and sort of do this part of it. And if that's a little hard, do this. And if that's too hard, then do this. And if that's too hard, do this. And if that's too hard, do this. And the very last line is, and if you can't do anything else, the Lord says, then bring me your failure. It's so moving. Yogananda says it's just, it's one of the things that makes this, the teaching of self-realization so wonderful. So if everything else fails, 
that it leaves me a grudge of failure. Because if you hold your failure to your ego, then you contract it even that much farther, you see. In fact, Swamiji said to us once so sweetly, he said, God is very pleased when you give him for successes, when you, when you say God is the doer and you offer with gratitude. He said, but he's more pleased when you bring him your failures. Because we're, we're, once we're failing, there's this contractive direction. And if you reverse that contractive direction, you start the expansion of your magnetism again, and as soon as your magnetism gets going, remember the first chapter? If we attract money, then we must somehow also repel it. And if the money is out there to be attracted, all we have to do is get them involved in a greater and greater reality, and sooner or later we're going to stumble into it. It's got to be out there somewhere, right? So always just ask yourself, if you remember nothing from this class, just remember that simple thought. Whenever you're faced with a decision, say, what is the most expensive choice that I actually have the capacity to take at this point? We have to be practical in our idealism. Maybe we know we shouldn't eat chocolate, but there are those who die for chocolates. You really want to eat all ten of them. Well, right now, take one, smash it on the ground, and throw it in the dumpster. Right? Don't not Or I have a better idea. Take it to Rick's. But get it out of your life. I mean, I've done, I've done just exactly that. When I'm faced with some kind of temptation, I have one moment of clarity, and I get it out of my life. Yeah, I said, you're right. <laughs> that would be wrong. That would not be Dharma. That would be wrong. But you see what I mean? You might not have the capacity to do anything else, but just do something that's slightly less than your worst. And if you always do that, you'll be astonished how different your life becomes. That would be tired of that. It would be tired of that. We're skipping ahead to a later chapter. <laughs>